You can see how everything is just a random rearrangement of particles in a vibrating superposition. I have no idea what you are talking about. That's how a character in the Oscar-winning movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once explains the quantum multiverse to her mother as a random rearrangement of particles in a vibrating superposition. The reality isn't quite as mind-blowing as Hollywood makes it out to be, but advances in quantum computing could change our everyday lives in ways that might sound like science fiction. In a new book called Quantum Supremacy, theoretical physicist Michio Kaku explains how quantum computing could change everything everywhere, if not all at once. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, Dominica Fetaplace, as we chat with Michio Kaku about the coming revolution in quantum computing. Michio Kaku has written more than a dozen books, ranging from textbooks on string theory to popular nonfiction on subjects such as parallel universes and neuroscience. He specializes in explaining scientific frontiers and technological trends in terms that non-scientists can understand. His latest book zeroes in on a trend that is just starting to make the transition from the lab to the marketplace. Quantum computing is a big deal for big companies including Microsoft, Amazon, Google, IBM, and Boeing, as well as for lesser-known ventures such as IonQ and D-Wave Systems. Kaku's book is called Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. And he does mean everything. The book lays out the effects that Kaku thinks quantum computers will have on energy, food resources and the environment, medicine and genetics, and even on answers to the ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. It's hard to stuff all that into a half-hour podcast, but my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, and I did our best when we chatted with Michio Kaku over Zoom. I started out by asking how a theoretical physicist ended up writing about the applications of quantum computing. When you talk about computers, usually you talk about teenagers and how they fall in love with circuits and transistors and Before you know it, the next Steve Jobs uh, is created. I came in from a different point of view. I'm a physicist, and we physicists try to find the theory of everything. That is an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Now, it turns out that we have a candidate for this fabulous theory. It's called string theory, but it's so complicated with so many resonances that the human mind has not been able to solve string theory. What a frustrating thing. So I said to myself, now, wait a minute. String theory is a quantum theory, like the atom. Why not use quantum computers to solve a quantum problem? And so I said to myself, aha, maybe we're barking up the wrong tree. Maybe the human mind is not powerful enough to solve the theory of everything. So why not use a quantum computer to solve a quantum problem. That's how I got into it. I got into it from the back entrance. 
There have been a lot of wild claims related to quantum phenomena in the past, such as the healing power of quantum crystals or the possibility of time travel or the ability to visit parallel universes. How do you distinguish the real promise of quantum computing from the less credible claims? Well, it was Einstein himself who said that the more successful the quantum theory gets, the sillier it looks. In other words, it is an incredibly useful theory. This conversation, laser beams, computers, everything in our modern society is based on the quantum principle. But the applications of it, okay, are incredible. And every every few years, we find even more applications of it. And the question is, where does it stop? That's why a lot of people can jump on the bandwagon and start to make all sorts of outrageous, rather silly questions about the nature of the universe coming from philosophy. Now, you can't rule it out totally because what we think is incorrect today with quantum mechanics may turn out to be correct in the future. For example, the multiverse. At first, this idea sounds crazy. Even the founders of the quantum theory, like Niels Bohr, thought it was ridiculous to have parallel universes. But hey, get used to it. Now we physicists work in parallel universes. In fact, in string theory, we have an infinite number of 11-dimensional hyperspatial parallel universes. And it spilled over to popular culture. Now Marvel Comics has adopted the multiverse as one of the themes of its movies. All the latest Marvel movies have been based on the multiverse. And so you can't quite dismiss the quantum theory for making outrageous statements, because some of these statements ultimately turn out to be true. Do you have a personal BS detector? Is there something that you look at to say, uh, this is too far, or yeah, this could happen? Yeah, there is one thing that a lot of people get mixed up when they talk about the multiverse. When they talk about the multiverse, they move between universes as if you just open a door and you go to the next universe. That's the way it is in an Oscar-winning movie. A movie that won the Oscars is based on the idea that in a laundromat, you can go back and forth between different parallel universes. It doesn't work that way. It turns out that it takes an enormous amount of energy and time to go between universes. So believe it or not, it may be possible to go between universes, but it's not for us. The energy, the time, the hardware necessary to go between parallel universes is staggering. So in other words, you're not going to wake up on Mars tomorrow. By the way, that's a question that we sometimes give our PhD students. These people are, of course, some of the brightest people. They're going to become professors of physics. And we give them a question. Calculate the probability that you'll wake up on Mars tomorrow. And they do the calculation. They know the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. They put in the variables and bingo. You can calculate what probability it would take for you to wake up on Mars tomorrow. The probability is so small, you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for that to happen. So in other words, chances are tomorrow, you're going to wake up in your bed tomorrow. I've seen that movie. Uh, I wanted to back up a little bit and ask you for your elevator pitch explanation for the difference between classical computers and quantum computers, because I'm sure a lot of people have no idea. Uh, it sounds like magic, but there's some real physics behind it. Well, let's talk about the evolution of the computer, okay? 
In the first stage of computer history, we have what are called analog computers. Uh, that is, computers that computed on sticks, on uh, levers, pulleys, gears. You turn the crank, and it would do a calculation. The abacus used to write Asia is an example of an analog computer. But so for thousands of years, people used sticks, gears, levers to do calculations. Then, of course, World War II comes along, and the Germans have a code that has to be broken. And so Alan Turing and his friends devise a new type of computer, a computer that computes on digital zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, and computes with electricity. So with the speed of electricity, you can then begin to break the Nazi code. That became the second era of computation, computing on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. So think of an atom. An atom spins. It can spin up or down. And so you can actually use atoms in that sense for a calculation. This is zero, and this is one. Now, we're talking about quantum computers, because we're beginning to exhaust the power of a conventional digital computer. You know, Silicon Valley could eventually become a rust belt, because we're making the transition to the third generation. We're leaving the world of digital computers and entering the world of quantum computers. So instead of atoms spinning up and spinning down, they can spin sideways. They can spin upside down. They can spin in any direction. Now, what does this mean? It means that the power, the power of your computer has been multiplied by an infinite amount of information. Quantum computers, in principle, are infinitely more powerful than a digital computer that computes on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Because quantum computers are quantum mechanical. The atom can spin in any direction. How many directions are there? An infinite number of directions. Now, there's something called Moore's Law. Moore's Law is what's driving Silicon Valley. And Moore's Law simply says the computer power doubles every 18 months. That means at Christmas time, your computers are twice as powerful as they were in the last Christmas. That drives the economy. Everyone wants to buy the latest computer, knowing that it's twice as powerful as last year's computer. But Moore's Law is now tapering off. We're now beginning to see the end of Moore's Law. And with it, perhaps a collapse of the world economy. Because the world economy is based on computers being twice as powerful every year. That's the problem with the second stage. We're nearing the end of the second stage now. Now we may have to go to the third stage, and the third stage is quantum computers when we compute on the ultimate computer. The ultimate computer is the atom. And atomic computers, quantum computers, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the next generation of computers that are going to replace digital computers. Now today, for example, we don't use the abacus anymore. In Asia, some people still cling to it, but for the most part, we don't use the abacus. We don't use levers, gears. In the future, we'll view digital computers like we view the abacus. Old-fashioned, obsolete. This is for the garbage can. That's how the future is going to evolve. Many people say it'll take at least a decade to enter this next stage of computation. Do you agree with that? timetable? 
Well, we don't know for sure. However, it used to be that people thought that maybe it would take centuries before we could compute on atoms. Nope, we have them now. Quantum computers actually exist. And there's something called quantum supremacy. Quantum supremacy is the point at which a quantum computer can be much faster than a digital computer on certain tasks. We've passed that point already now. We can now build quantum computers that are millions of times more powerful than a digital computer on certain tasks. Now, that's the killer. We want a quantum computer that is millions of times faster than a digital computer on all tasks, not just specialized one that we handpick. We're not there yet. But quantum computers exist already. And in some sense, the greatest quantum uh, computer of all is Mother Nature. We now know that Mother Nature, with photosynthesis, with protein synthesis, with digestion, with all the chemical processes we see around us, they're all quantum mechanical. Disease, aging, all of it is a byproduct of the quantum mechanics of molecules. So the greatest quantum mechanic is Mother Nature. We're chasing after Mother Nature. We're trying to create a quantum computer, for example, that is as good as photosynthesis. Photosynthesis you, you have in your backyard. Children play with flowers. That's photosynthesis. We're not there yet. We have yet to create a quantum computer as sophisticated as a flower. You've talked about how quantum computers will replace classical computers to such an extent that you'll have to throw your digital computer in the junkyard and, and Silicon Valley might become a ghost town. But I've also heard that the real way that this is going to happen is that there will be a hybrid approach to computing, that it will be a mix of your classical ones and zeros computing and the quantum approach. And there are some tasks that are better handled through digital. Other tasks are better handled with quantum approach. Uh, do you really think that digital ones and zeros computers will go totally extinct? Or do you think that some sort of new hybrid will emerge? Well, you know, we still use uh, analog computers. In Asia, people still use the Abacus, for example. And so we will still have digital computers, but they'll be, for the most part, sidelined by quantum computers. Now, digital computers are good for certain tasks. Like, for example, one day in our contact lens, we will put a chip and we will be able to contact the internet by blinking. Just by blinking, we'll be able to get online. That of course is a byproduct of digital computers, not quantum computers. It'd be very difficult to put a quantum computer in your lens, mm -hmm. but already, already we've been able to do that. We can actually hook up the, the iris of the eye to a, a com digital computer and actually, uh, you can play golf. Uh, there's a company that sells it. So you can keep golf uh, scores, for example, in your contact lens. Now, a quantum computer, the ones we have today are huge. Let's be honest about it. It's like digital computers of 1950. These are gigantic monsters in 1950. And now, of course, for quantum computers, they're equally horrendous in terms of weight and size. Why is that? You have to cool cool down the components to near absolute zero. If somebody sneezes in the other room, somebody burps, whoops, there goes your million dollar calculation out the window. 
So you have to make it very, very cold. Now, here's the irony. The irony is that Mother Nature doesn't need refrigerators. Mother Nature doesn't need super cooling. Mother Nature just uses ordinary sunlight and quantum computer calculations are done. So we have to catch up to Mother Nature. Mother Nature in a flower does something that we cannot do with a multi-million dollar laboratory, but we're getting there. For example, laser, laser quantum computers do not need all this refrigeration equipment. And so it may be possible to create a streamlined quantum computer that you can put in your pocket, but we're not there yet. Mother Nature is still ahead of us. Yes, in your book, you discuss the various approaches to quantum computing, including using lasers as well as superconducting circuits or trapped ions or topological qubits that make use of nanowires. It so happens that in the Seattle area, Microsoft is taking the topological nanowire approach, while another company called IonQ is building a facility to manufacture quantum computers that use trapped ions. What would you like to say about the various approaches? And do you think that one type of technology will win out? Well, first of all, how many quantum computers does Mother Nature have? <laughs> Mother Nature has millions, millions of types of quantum computers. Quantum computers for mammals, for, for reptiles, for plants, for chemical reactions. So each, each reaction could be quantum mechanical, and you can build a computer out of it. So how many quantum computer architectures are possible? an infinite number of them. Now, of course, only a handful of them are practical and economical. But the point I'm raising is that Mother Nature has already devised millions of quantum mechanical systems, and we're playing catch-up. We're playing catch-up to Mother Nature. And so I think that one day, one or a handful of these technologies will dominate the whole field. But we're not sure yet. It's like a horse race. You hear the buzzer. The horses are out of the gate. And we'll have to wait and see which horse turns out to be the one that's economical and practical. What real-world applications will be the first to emerge thanks to quantum computing? Uh, which would make the most difference for daily life in, for example, the year 2050? Okay, well, it turns out that every chemical process is basically quantum mechanical, and they can be augmented, taken apart using quantum computers. Let me give you the simplest example. Fertilizer. We have a green revolution that came out of uh, World War I, and that green revolution has fed the world's population with fertilizer, artificial fertilizer. In fact, about 1% or so of the world's energy goes to the, this process to refine nitrogen in the air to create fertilizer. But it's very wasteful, very expensive. Disasters happen. Just uh, just last year, there was a huge fire not, not too far from here. And uh, of course, it means that a lot of money was lost in the process of putting out the fire. We need a quantum mechanical green revolution, a second green revolution. You realize that about 50% of the atoms of your body, 50% of the atoms of your body are a byproduct of this artificial fertilizer process. We can replace that with quantum computers. Also, people talk about the solar revolution. It never came. Everyone says every year we're going to have solar power everywhere. Never happens. Why? Because we forget that the bottleneck is the battery. We love the solar cell, but it's the battery that kills you. 
because the batteries do not obey Moore's law. They don't double in power every 18 months. This is where quantum computers can come in to create chemical reactions, chemical reactions without chemicals. Now, some chemists have said that doesn't this mean that a computer will put us out of business? That we'll have chemical reactions in the memory of a computer? So who needs a, who needs a chemist anymore? No. I think that chemists who do not use quantum computers to model chemical reactions will go bankrupt. They will be out of a job. They'll be replaced by chemists who do use quantum computers. This means all medicine, all medicine can eventually be reduced to a quantum computer. How do we find new drugs today? Trial and error. We have thousands of petri dishes with chemicals in it, thousands of them at one by one, we tediously see whether or not they have any antibiotic properties. Why not do that in the memory of a, of a quantum computer? So the applications are enormous. For example, fusion power. Just last year, it was demonstrated that we can build a fusion reactor that burns hydrogen to create fabulous amounts of energy. But why don't we have it? We don't have it today because the magnetic fields are usually unstable. Unstable because magnetic fields change with time. That's where quantum computers can calculate the magnetic field so that we have a stable configuration to create unlimited energy from a fusion reactor. So think about that. Any discipline that requires the use of molecules and atoms can be helped by the quantum revolution, including cancer research, aging. Why do we die? Think about it for a moment. Is there a law of physics that says that we have to die? Physics says that entropy increases. That means that as time goes by, airs build up in our molecules. Airs build up, we get old, we age, and we die. That's the second law of thermodynamics. But notice that I said that in a closed system, entropy increases, disorder increases. But if I open the box, if I have an open system and I use quantum computers to add extra energy from the outside, I can begin the process of stopping the aging process. Think about that. The possibility of extending the human lifespan by reducing the buildup of errors in our DNA. This is another possibility that I write about in my book. So in other words, the applications are endless because computers today are digital computers. They don't understand why things work. They simply use trial and error. That's how we discovered penicillin. That's how we discovered most of the therapies of medicine, by trial and error. In the future, we'll do it in the memory of a quantum computer. We'll do it digitally and virtually in the memory of a quantum computer. In other words, this is going to change everything. I think uh, your discussion of how quantum computing could be applied to uh, medical issues and gene editing uh, are among the farthest out <laughs> subjects that you address. I mean, you, you could talk about uh, the fate of the universe. You do address that in the book as well. But I think in terms of everyday life, the medical applications are pretty way out. But 
it seems to me that you have to be concerned about the potential Frankenstein nightmare of people using this technology to do crazy things and maybe not even understanding what they're doing. Uh, can you talk about the ethical concerns that relate to using quantum computing, especially with biological processes? Well, when you talk about the ethics of biotechnology, you realize that technology is a double-edged sword. It can cut against you, it can cut against people, or it can cut against disease and illnesses. Now, the main criticism of quantum computers comes from the CIA. It turns out that quantum computers in principle are so powerful, it could break any security code on the planet Earth. This means that every single computer containing the crown jewels of the secrets of a nation can be pried loose if you have a quantum computer. This is causing the CIA to freak out because it means that their treasured secrets are vulnerable to an attack once somebody has a quantum computer. Now, we're not there yet. It may take years before quantum computers are powerful enough to break into the CIA codes, but it's inevitable. And already, the government, the U.S. government, has issued a directive stating that, yes, we have to be prepared for this. It's not going to happen tomorrow. We don't know when it's going to happen, they say, but it will happen. And steps have to be taken now to make sure that we can safeguard our secrets or else the crown jewels will be, will be pilfered by teenagers who have access to a quantum computer. So that's the immediate concern that, that people have at the present time. All this sounds like science fiction, and of course, quantum uh, physics and quantum computing have made their appearance in science fiction movies and novels. You mentioned uh, everything everywhere all at once. Uh, there's uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, and Doctor Strange, uh, and the Multiverse of Madness which are all pretty way out movies uh, and shouldn't be taken as scientific gospel. But are there any science fiction novels or movies that do a particularly good job of incorporating quantum physics, anything that you would assign your students to, to watch to really get a true sense of what this all means? Uh, well, unfortunately, most science fiction writers don't know much about quantum physics. So I think we're still far behind. However, Certain aspects of quantum physics have been incorporated into the literature. For example, one of the earliest attempts to incorporate science into fiction was Alice in Wonderland. Charles Dodgson, otherwise known as Lewis Carroll, the pseudonym, was a mathematician at Oxford University. And in mathematics, there's something called multiply connected spaces. That is, I take two spaces, that are parallel to each other and join them at the hip. These are called multiply connected spaces, a well-established branch of mathematics. And so Charles Dodson says, well, I can write a children's story about this called Alice in Wonderland. When Alice goes through the looking glass, she puts her hand through and her hand winds up on the other side of forever. What is that? We physicists call that a wormhole. A wormhole is basically two black holes joined together at the hip. Think of a funnel. A funnel has a tip at the end. Take two funnels, stick two funnels together, connecting two parallel sheets. And what is that? That is a wormhole. And who came up with that? Albert Einstein in 1935, 
he wrote the first paper, the first physics paper on wormholes. And do we think they exist? Well, it turns out that in string theory, string theory has millions of different kinds of uh, wormholes in it. That doesn't mean that we can find them or go through them, but it means that we have to take them seriously now because they are a byproduct of the equations. They go way beyond Einstein. Einstein opened the door for wormholes. And now, of course, wormholes have taken over Hollywood. It used to be that Hollywood scriptwriters would write about astronauts. But hey, you know, we've been there. We've done that. We've gone to the moon. So Hollywood scriptwriters are scratching their heads. How can we dazzle the audience if the audience already knows about rocket ships? Well, what comes from physics? The multiverse. And so the multiverse, of course, as I said before, chances are you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for you to wake up on Mars tomorrow. But as far as being a scientific concept, we haven't proven it yet. But every physicist that I know of that works in the subject says, yes, yes, we work on wormholes. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for quantum physics to be such a big theme in science fiction, considering that script writers really don't know all that much about quantum physics? Well, one physicist was appalled that different aspects of quantum physics with reputable names attached to it, uh, the names were scratched out and all sorts of bizarre concepts were attached to it. So he said, it's like going to a city where all the street names are different all the all the all the the streets are hooked up in a different way, and it's madness. So he thought that quantum mechanics was being corrupted. However, I look at it a slightly different way, and that is that the average person knows that it's Hollywood. I mean, come on, people don't take these seriously. It's Hollywood, but the fact that what we're talking about—that is, wormholes, multiply connected spaces—what we're talking about is something that we physicists work on. I publish papers in the subject, and I think people get used to the idea that, whoa, maybe this has something to do with the universe, creation, life, and that's a good thing, because otherwise it's just like, oh, let's explore Mars tomorrow. No, we have to capture the imagination of the public. We have to get young people to say to themselves, wow, there's a whole universe out there. There's a whole multiverse out there. Because we want young people to be inspired to eventually become scientists themselves. And so the point I'm raising is, even though it sounds like straight science fiction, a lot of these things we do talk about among physicists. The probabilities of them happening, of course, you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe. But we talk about wormholes. We talk about time travel. We talk about multiple connected spaces. We talk about all the things that you see on Star Trek. This book covers a lot of scientific applications of quantum computing to medicine, to cosmology, uh, how it might fight climate change. Uh, but speaking of the imagination, do you see any way that quantum computing could open up new avenues of creative expression or new art forms derived from quantum computing? Uh, yeah, I think for artists, there's a whole explosion of possibilities. You realize that, of course, thousands of years ago, Art was basically moving rocks around and putting scratches in the dirt. That's how art was first created. Then we discovered how to refine rocks to make metals and then to refine these things to create works of art. Now with computers, we're able to interface with the human mind. We can actually begin to extract images from the human brain. So I think that in the future, artists will love this. They'll be able to think of something and in their imagination, 
and have it created in, in the memory of a computer and then with a 3D printer printing it out. Oh, I so, would love that. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And in Berkeley, where I got my PhD years ago, they actually have a group that is looking at the possibility of you thinking of certain objects and having it printed out with a 3D printer. That's going to revolutionize art because instead of using a pencil and paper, and instead of even using a computer, you will simply use your mind to visualize works of art and then having it printed out with a 3D laser printer. And so these are artistic applications of this technology. When the brain is connected directly to a computer, this is called the BCI, Brain Computer Interface. And the, the computer in turn is connected to a 3D printer so that you imagine something and have it printed out. Is there something that you personally are looking forward to with the quantum revolution? Uh, if you could snap your fingers, what quantum application would you want to use in your own life? Well, there's a famous novel um, uh, the, about the restaurant at the end of the universe, about uh, a race of beings that wanted to find the meaning of the universe. So they created a supercomputer and they asked it one question, what is the meaning of the universe? So the supercomputer chugs and chugs and chugs for thousands of years. Finally, it spits out the answer. So everyone is anxious. What is the meaning of the universe? And the answer was 42. So I just hope that when we put string theory on a computer and ask the computer, what is the meaning of string theory, that we don't come up with 42 that we come up with a meaningful answer. And I think we will. We will probably come up with an answer about the nature of our universe. Why is our universe the way it is? I think that'll come out of a quantum computer. Well, I hope we live to see it. And I'm sure the answer will be more valuable than 42. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Kaku, and good luck with the book, Quantum okay. Supremacy. It's a real treat. Okay, thank you. Thanks to Michio Kaku and Jillian Briglia at Doubleday Penguin Random House for setting up the interview. Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything, goes on sale May 2nd. For more about the book, Michio Kaku's other works, and recent developments in quantum computing, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. While you're online, check out DometicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.